So hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is 2014 and we are here in the new year, still uh, on duty to, to serve you with the latest news. And uh, we, this is of course me, myself, Tim Pritlove and Mark von Secarendero sitting hello. there over there in hello. the Amsterdam's. Yes. Oh, I was so worried that my computer couldn't go from 2013 to 2014, but it worked. Everything worked. <laughs> why that? Why, 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 why did you think that? I, don't, I thought that they, when they first made these computers, they weren't ready for the future. <laughs> <laughs> they thought, we'll never get past 2013. It's the end of the world kind of year. Yeah, that's probably. a problem. We have an end of the world year every year. So we made it into another afterlife. Yes. Uh, And I, 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 yeah, and I would say I would say that that this was one of the best endings for a year so far. <laughs> <laughs> We met both in uh, yeah. in Hamburg at the 30th uh, Chaos Communication Congress, and apart from enjoying everything mm -hmm. we uh, found there, I, I think I, I just you know I just think you enjoyed it. Yes, um, we also did a podcast. True. Together for your program, mm -hmm. citizenreporter.org, and I guess it's already published. True. So, who hasn't listened to this might uh, <laughs> want to uh, join uh, your program too, because mm -hmm. this was a more extensive look on what happened at the event, or at least what, how would you put it? It wasn't really a reportage on, on what the Congress was about, but more from what we learned over the years. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a, a look back at uh, how it has grown and uh, in the ways that it's surprised you or even Mitch, who was joining us on that program. So it was a little bit of a year in review, but more like Congress in review over the years. Year in review over the years. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and it was also just um, while we were talking about other things we would occasionally be or interrupted or usually me getting distracted and listening to the sounds around us and describing the the scene in different ways and, and why we like it so much. And so I think it did a little bit of both. It discussed some issues and it also discussed the actual feel. Yeah, but uh, let's stop with the good news and let's <laughs> <laughs> get to to the world of news, the news with a Z. Yes. Um, All right. And All right. yeah, this year is no difference. We still have a lot of conflict. We do. And some becoming louder than others as the year begins. Um, let's start in Iraq because, in fact, Iraq might be one of the more underreported places of 2013. Uh, we'll see what happens in 2014. And Part of uh, what makes me say that is, uh, first, Iraqi friends who have the good fortune of meeting up with, uh, I know a few who are, are no longer in the country or go back when they can, but they live outside. And they've always said, you know, it, the violence is, is crazier than maybe you realize. It's, it's car bombs, not just car bomb, it's car bombs every day in, ba in Baghdad. And beyond that, that just there are cities, and now today's headline, or over the weekend, especially in the headlines, was Fallujah, which is a name many people will remember as a place where there was this huge uh, 
battles, uh, not just battle, but battles between the U.S. military and what we call militants. I hate all these words because they're they're all kind of loaded terms. But basically, we're talking about fighters. Uh, they're calling themselves ISIL, so Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda linked. Islamic State of Iraq in the Levant. It's a horrible title. I mean, Al-Qaeda, ever since bin Laden died, they just keep getting these weird branch names. That, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the domains are available. Yeah. So that's why they go. Uh, and, depending, and depending on where you look, you also see the uh, description ISIS. So the same, oh. but uh, replacing it with Syria... But right. I think Levant is sort the of whole region. is the region they are referring to, basically. And this yeah. includes Syria, but it would also, yeah. in theory, include the Lebanon, Palestine. Palestine, and Israel as well. Yeah. So the big news um, is that the Iraq is preparing an attack on Fallujah. And I know that is a strange headline initially. Iraq is preparing an attack on its city of Fallujah. And this is because... Uh, the city has fallen into the control of uh, militant fighters that are Al-Qaeda uh, linked. And basically the country does not have control over that city. Uh, it lost control in late December, again, as these militant groups just got power, pushed out any sort of security forces. But what's odd about this bit of news uh, is that it's announced by the Iraqi government that they're going to attack Fallujah. And then you get these a lot of reactions from the U.S. Uh, officials saying we're going to help Iraq do this. But it's all very odd. Uh, I mean, talking about the attack, I suspect, kind of ruins the element of surprise. And it's just a surprising, a strange tactic. Uh, but, but that's the big headline over the weekend, that there's going to be an attack. The U.S., of course, assures everyone, because back in the U.S., no one wants to be involved in anything anymore. So they assure the world that it's just logistical support. And uh, Iraq says the military is already at the edge of the city, uh, just waiting for people to evacuate, uh, you know, humanitarian, uh, before they apparently level the place with all kinds of weapons and, and explosives. And so that is, uh, I don't know, I guess the headline will come in the next few days. Uh, Fallujah uh, either taken back or, or maybe or maybe something else like battles rage on. Yeah, and I think the reports are already quite confusing. Um, some reports saying, well, it's not the ISIS alone that is uh, in control mm -hmm. there, but the other militant groups who are also playing a major role. And uh, especially in, um, in the German Wikipedia, I saw that it was already taken back, but this seems to be changed again. So it's a, a confusing... <laughs> Um, situation news-wise. I think it's also interesting um, to look at the fact that, that Fallujah is one of the closest cities to Baghdad. So we're not talking about mm. some place somewhere in Iraq. It's actually at the very core of Iraq and as far as I know also the next city Ramadi is also more or less under control. And it's, it's yeah. this uh, whole path uh, along the uh, Euphrates the river towards Syria that is more or less uh, in control by some militant groups maybe associated primarily with Al-Qaeda or some other weird Islamistic uh, uh, leader. Yeah. Um, looking at the situation from uh, above 
I'd say that we are still in a big mess in this area and it's only getting worse. Once the US has retracted from Iraq, now this country is left to um, yeah, to, to all those different groups who have a stake there and this years of fighting have created lots of disillusioned people and disillusioned people actually fighting against something and you know, yeah. following whatever the the current trend in, in leadership is and, and it's just you know, getting weirder and weirder. Yeah. I mean it's a war. There's a war going on. I, I even myself I've often thought about Iraq over the last year or two and thought, well it, I mean of course what happened wasn't good, but at least, you know, okay, Saddam is out, there's a government and it's a country, and uh, well, there is violence, but it's still a country. But now, I've come to realize this is way too simplistic. Actually, there is there is a war for for this, not just this country, but for many of the cities, uh, still going on. So it's really far from settled and secured, and not at all. Uh, so it just, yeah, I think this will be a bad year for it. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and it's also interesting that the U.S. has seems to have lost their, their path in, in, in entirely. I mean, there's no obvious strategy uh, that makes any sense. Um, they are, you know, they are opposing the Syrian regime, you know, but still <laughs> supporting the Iraq government to, you know, at least stabilize the country a bit. But the yeah. Iraq government itself is more or less allying with Assad regime because they have the same enemy, inside their countries. So that's hmm. the mess, you know, the, the, the alliances are uh, unclear and the role of the US isn't getting any better. Yeah. And, and when, uh, just one last thing for me, uh, when you look at the name Fallujah, I mean, I remember, uh, even on my own podcast, not to, to self-promote, but I remember having interviews with people who worked as humanitarian workers during the siege of Fallujah and this kind of stories they had were among the more horrible you'll ever hear in your life of any war, of any humanitarian situation. And, you know, nowadays when we read about what's going on in a battle for Fallujah, again, I think about trauma and, and what happens when you're abused and destroyed, I mean, more than abused. And, and all these years later, it, it, I don't think it should be very surprising, actually, that a city and that a people are still fighting or or being attacked or or because you know this was a place that in many ways was born out of a terrible act of violence acts of violence it's like if you if you're hatched in a war well then you know it's not going to be a, a peaceful and an easy existence afterwards either you know you've got that that war trauma that that terrible recent history i mean it's um poor fallujah is is really what i'm saying uh just Terrible, terrible decades for that place. Yeah, we'll see how this will turn out. But doesn't yeah, really I look guess nice. it'll be back in the headlines next week at this rate. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe they're just playing. You know, they announce it and they're not actually going to do anything. But, uh, yeah, and it's still a question if it's going to be in the headlines. Yeah. Now, uh, a little over in the Levant, in a different part of the Levant, uh, Israel was in the news. That's never a surprise, but Israel was in the news for something you, perhaps you don't hear so often about. Uh, African migrants were protesting in the thousands. Uh, they were protesting a new law in Israel. I believe they were in uh, Tel Aviv and 
maybe some other places, because this is an ongoing problem in the country. The new law came out that basically says that if you don't have a visa, as especially as an African migrant, so it's very easy to find people in Israel, you just look for the black people or the dark-skinned people, if mm-hmm. you prefer. Um, and if you don't have a visa, you can be arrested, and you get sent to this, what's being described as an open-air prison, which is in the desert in the south. We've talked about that region uh, for other related stories. And uh, even the UN now is, is saying that this is a major problem, this kind of treatment of migrants. We're talking about thousands, well, actually 60,000 in the country, 50,000 according to some Israeli newspapers, 60,000 says Reuters, uh, of Eritrean and Sudanese migrants. And they, a lot of them came in the last two decades, not in the last few years, actually, but in the last two decades. So they've been working in the country or at least living in the country. I don't know how easy it is to get a job. I've read they work in resorts a lot of times if they work. Um, and they're not granted uh, visas very easily. It's said that you, you can stand online, you can wait, but you don't often get something. And here comes this policy of if I stop you as police uh, and, and you don't have a visa, well, then you're going to jail. So there's a, a big outrage among this community that's been living in Israel uh, for some time now and who come from especially Eritrea and Sudan, two countries it's very hard to go home to. Uh, and when I say very hard, it's damn near impossible. Um, and, and Israel is in this strange situation where they, they're they simply not a country that is good at dealing with migrants, especially from Africa. They, I mean, you could say they don't have a lot of experience with it. They're a young country, uh, but some would say that they don't care. The, the administration, when it comes to immigration, especially in the current political climate, it's not, you know, voters don't care about African migrants that much, or at least not the majority voters. So these political parties don't do much for them so far. Um, Are we yeah. talking about people uh, of somehow Jewish descent here? Not as far as I know. You have from Ethiopia the, what are they called? The original, no. Um, you know, the, the, there's a Jewish population there that goes back so many hundreds of years. But this is not them. Uh, these are, I believe these are um, refugees to some extent. I mean, they're described as migrants in the media. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think if you, if you tell me they're from Eritrea and Sudan, those are two countries. I mean, Eritrea is a, is a dictatorship of the worst kind. And Sudan, well... <laughs> Not you know, much better. No. And so, for me, they're, they're refugees to some extent. But I suppose they're arriving not as refugees. They're arriving as migrants. They're saying this border with Egypt uh, used to be a little more easy to pass, I guess, 10 years ago or in the last 10 years. Although now they say they've quite, like, sealed it off. Um, so they came in at, at, in those times. Uh, but I don't think they're, they're Jewish, no. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they can deal with migrants as long as they're Jewish. That's what True. the foundation of the country of is, but yeah, True. not so much with everybody else. Yeah, no, and, and, and they're just not that good with African migrants until now, until maybe we'll see some change in policy. But I think this is also a political game. It really depends on what kind of party is, is leading the country and, and staffing and, well, and making policy for immigration. Because I'm sure there are plenty of people in Israel that, that, that would be more progressive and, and creative with handling giving the visas or, or status to people who are working there, even if they're from Eritrea or Sudan. 
Uh, so this one was in the news over the weekend, and I don't think this is the last you'll hear of this community that's you know, only starting to be seen and be heard. I think when you first arrive in Israel and, well, you're, you're, you're a migrant from Africa, it's hard to, to know what your power is. You probably have very little power. But now when you look around and you see your 60,000 people, 50,000 people, you might realize, you know what, we, we may make some demands here. And that's, I think that's what's going to be happening this year. Okay. Yes. Uh, let's see. Oh, I wanted to do something before we move on. I'm still trying to develop a way to do the, the quote, quote of the day. Uh, in a way, ladies and gentlemen, that Tim won't know exactly what story it's linked to, although he might. Uh, so in an effort to, um, you know, surprise Tim uh, or attempt to, to stump him, I'm going to read the quote of the day. <laughs> And the, in the notes, you can't necessarily tell who it belongs to. Or, or the, the goal here is who said it, not so much the name, but perhaps the position uh, and in what context. Anything, anything you got, Tim. Here it is. It's very simple. <clears throat> the quote of the day, it's not an excuse not to pursue a responsible fiscal and macroeconomic policy. Who said this or why? <coughs> or what is this about? Well... <laughs> I think the list of topics has given a hint uh, here. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's one of those sentences you hear uh, or you might uh, hear or that at least sound related to Europe. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's on it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, where it's all about <laughs> stability and so on. And, yeah, the big news is that uh, Latvia is on its path to Europe once more by uh, embracing the euro. So uh. I'd say this is something <laughs> that, you know, one of the major politicians in Latvia might have said uh, just to make sure that, you know, although we have the new currency now, <laughs> it's still a lot of things to be done. Oh, Tim gets it. Tim, yes. What's his name? God, I, I oh yes, I the know. Latvian <laughs> acting prime minister. He's he's just pretending. Uh, Vladis Dombrovskis. Dombrovs. I'm making him sound Greek, but he's Latvian. Dombrovskis. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Uh, the acting prime minister of Latvia was exactly what Tim said, pointing okay. out, "Hey, we've joined the euro, but we're not going to get all crazy on you." <laughs> So maybe Crazy. we should just dive into this uh, news. Uh, of course. Bit. <laughs> yeah. So there. What what number are we on in terms of country? Uh, we've got. You mean uh, how many 13? members the eurozone has? Yes, this is a good pub quiz. You can all oh, yeah, shout yeah. it at home while you're riding I your bike. I have no idea. No, I think I think it's something like thirteen. We were once eleven. Um. This is a tough one. You'd have to probably look up the euro. Well, I'll give you some facts in the meantime. Okay, I've uh, looked it up already. Oh, I found it. It's 18. Yeah, it is. It oh, is. It's 18. quite a few, isn't it? They're sneaking in now every year. One more. <laughs> it barely makes the headlines. Yeah. And what I always find interesting is when you look at the euro um, bill. Mm -hmm. Have you done this? No. I, I, I rarely have any. <laughs> no, what... what, what? <laughs> <laughs> Take a fiver. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Is it on the fiver? Oh, yes, it is. So, 
you see, obviously, apart from all those buildings and bridges, you know, they settled for bridges. Sure. Uh, uh, because, you know, bridges link countries and so on. Uh, oh. You see, of obviously, a map of Europe, you know. Right. Where probably most of the countries are located. Not all of them that you see are part of the Eurozone. But oh, right. if you look below this map, there is some extra map <laughs> extensions <laughs> with other small islands and areas. Can you tell yeah. me which one the most left, um, the most, uh, the leftmost is? The one uh, right, right next to the Euro and. Okay, uh, there's a piece of a piece of land that's French Guiana. Yes, it is. Score. Yeah. So <laughs> just to make sure, you know, Eurozone extends over Europe. It's actually also happening in South America, but also wanna, in French, only in uh, French yeah. Guiana. That's we want to sure. make sure. Yeah. We, we, they want to make sure their space station is covered. Yes. You know. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. And the other uh, islands, I don't know. That might also be uh, French uh, islands in the Caribbean. Not so. Not so sure about this. Have oh, because they up. also get a box. Uh, where to go? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they have, of course they have the euro. But now Latvia has joined, and it's the first of the Baltic states who are also known for you know really wanting this integration into Europe. Mostly because they are former Soviet states, and uh, and many things, many, yeah, many things are important uh, to them. But getting uh, rid of the um, uh, Russian history or the Soviet history is really top on their list. So they can't get enough integration. Latvia, of course, and we've talked about it here on this program, and I'm going to keep an eye out on what happens to Latvia, hopefully only good things. Uh, but Latvia is seen as this example of what happens when you do good austerity and do what the, I think, European Central Bank wants you to do. They've done it. They followed all the steps, no matter how ridiculous or, or uh, damaging it has been in the short term. So they're like the, uh, the good student. We'll see, though. Yeah. How that I mean, the Baltic states... They're small. That makes it easier for them to to, to move. But uh, still, they have always been moving pretty quickly. They have been very fast in adopting uh, both a new lifestyle but also a new way of doing uh, their economy. And they have even managed uh, uh, to maintain their pace uh, throughout this crisis. They have also been suffering from this. But, you know... They are not really talking uh, and complaining much. They're just doing it. And uh, I think Latvia joining the Euro is uh, a part of the story. Yeah, so keep an eye out for the folk girl or the folk maid design. Uh, it looks like yeah, it's kind of a lady with, a, I think she's got long hair. I can't quite tell. And she's got a little hat on. And uh, you'll see her on your Euros if you oh, yeah. keep an eye and, out. And I made, I made a mistake. It's not the first Baltic state to join the Eurozone. It's actually the second. Estonia is already among. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Isn't it? Lithuania must really be feeling left out now. Yeah. I mean, Estonia is not a, a surprise. I didn't know no. when they joined. But they have been also or always very, very close to uh, Finland. Mm -hmm. uh, Cultural-wise, uh, language-wise, um, so it was much easier for them. Uh, the last country, the the one left is uh, Lithuania, and for them it's not that easy. They have 
Oh. Much more uh, Russians still living in the country. So, oh, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you can't, you can't have the euro if you've got all these Russians. No, living. it's it's uh, also a, a cultural battle <laughs> yeah. within the country. That's what I mean. Oh yeah, and I think financially they've had a harder time of the three. Yeah. Uh, but but they're still on their way. I've got agents in the country, and they tell me, oh, uh, you've got agents. On their way. Wow. I do yeah, <laughs> citizen reporter type type correspondence. By the way, Estonia joined the euro. 2011. So they're they're old school at this point. Okay, let's yeah, turn yeah. to other oh. disturbing news. It's true. It's disturbing. Uh, we just had elections last night uh, before the show today. I was getting my updates uh, at from Bangladesh. Uh, they had the tenth ever uh, national parliamentary elections, and this one was already making headlines long before it happened. Uh, especially because the opposition parties got together and decided to boycott the whole thing, uh, basically saying that it's a sham election, that the ruling party, uh, which is the, oh, where are they, the Awami League, uh, had rigged the whole thing. And as a result, uh, polling stations, which are usually schools, were being burned and destroyed uh, in, in large numbers. Um, actually, 18 people died in the polling last night, and uh, many people were injured because of such acts of uh, destruction and people basically angry with this whole election. Um, the turnout at this point is said to be 20%, and indeed the ruling Awami League won. Uh, there were only half the seats in parliament, so there's a total of 300 seats in Bangladesh parliament, and only half of them were actually up for um, election. But this was enough to really polarize the country. And actually, I was doing some deeper reading. This has been an ongoing thing. The the opposition, well, uh, the Awami League in the past has been the opposition that also accuses the ruling party of being no good. And this time around, it's been the Awami League for the last decade. Uh, but the BNP, the, the Bangladesh National Party, has had its share of being in power. And now they're playing this role of, of very extreme opposition, or at least very active uh, and and somewhat dangerous opposition. So there's been an election, uh, but there's also been a great amount of loss uh, coming with this whole thing. A uh, hundred schools, uh, according to the Glo- Global Voices, had a few good uh, reports from local bloggers. So a hundred schools torched, burned in this whole election. Is anybody uh, reviewing this uh, election process? Are there international observers? Um, Without having it in front of me, my initial reaction is yes. Uh, Bangladesh would not be a country for keeping them out. Uh, But I haven't read any reports yet from elections observers. That usually does take a day or two. Um, Yeah, actually. It would probably be the Carter Center might have people... And possibly the EU usually sends, in my experience, uh, someone or one or two people. Um, so so you don't know what if this is a normal thing for Bangladesh? I mean, it's not the first time we're hearing from uh, riots around elections in Bangladesh. No, no, it isn't. And here's the little update I could find. This was from Saturday, January 4th, so, so just a few days ago. The U.S. and the EU declined to send election observers to Bangladesh, it turns out. Uh, I'm looking for why. Uh, They're disappointed. Here's a quote. We're disappointed that the major political parties have not yet reached a consensus for fair elections. 
And that's that's the quote. Uh, so I guess, in fact, that's the ultimate condemning of an election. You don't even send observers. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Interesting and, and somewhat surprising. I figured they'd still send observers, but I guess it wasn't even worth it to them. Hmm. So not an internationally approved election. Or domestically, apparently. Hmm. So things, things are worse than in, like, say, the U.S.? Because Europe actually sends observers to the U.S. <laughs> yes. Do they, do they get accepted or do they get turned back? Oh, I'm not, I'm not. I don't know. I think they were accepted somehow. Oh, but it was good. a weird political message back in those days. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye out on what happens. But what I think happens is the ruling government stays in power and Bangladesh continues on its path, whichever path that is. Uh, here's a weird story I wanted to throw in because... Uh, I found, well, I wanted to dig a little under the normal stories that are coming out. Yeah, let's talk um, about fish. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and since one year ended, we wanted to say so long and thanks for all the fish. And now we come up with the next year that it's already about fish again. More fish for 2014. Uh, tuna. Tuna is a topic that always interests me. I always watch the um, uh, Sea Shepherd charging of the tuna ships from Japan and the Japanese fleet is always going to get tuna where it's not supposed to according to international law and the Japanese government says, we love tuna. Um, that was quote. So tuna prices are always of interest and as are tuna stocks or you know the amount of tuna in the sea and a headline actually in a, in a Canadian paper was talking about how they just had this beginning of the year um, fish auction uh, in in Tokyo, and it's a huge deal. We're talking about extremely fat fish worth a whole lot of money, hundreds of thousands of yen, maybe. Uh, I was going to say dollars. Um, so the word is that tuna prices have dropped, not just dropped, they're paying 5% of what they were paying last year for these massive tuna. And you know, normally if a price drops, then you'd think, well, everything is probably fine again with the stocks. But then if you look at the um, studies about tuna, it's actually, no, it's worse than ever, um, you know, in terms of overfishing. And uh, you have three types of uh, bluefin species of tuna, and this is very valuable, especially in, in Tokyo for, um, for sushi. And everything, the Pacific Ocean, the sort of, they list the southern, uh, it's not an ocean, but all right. And the Atlantic Ocean have uh, basically fallen to um, almost complete decline of the, um, the species in the last 15 years. And uh, so this is a weird relationship, and it's not very clear why pr the price would be so low when stocks are so bad. Um, well, I mean, so if some people price, think it's too expensive when in the, the previous years. Yeah, I mean, when the, the price uh, goes down, it means nobody is that interested in buying it anymore, isn't it? Uh, if the price goes down, I, but there is tons of interest, you know, in, in, especially in, in the context of Japan. So it's, it's sort of odd. But again, some people say it is because the prices were overblown in mm -hmm. the past few years. Um, but I take this as... A sort of, um, what do you call it? You, you don't want to acknowledge reality. And in the context of cooking in Japan, it's tuna is the way. Of course, we'll, we'll find more tuna wherever it is. And, and this is why you do have these things like, you know, Japanese fishing uh, ships coming into conflict with organizations like a, a Sea Shepherd or even a Greenpeace 
for violating such rules. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting. There's a bunch of facts about you know how much it's a lot of money these these fish go for, um, but it's um, it's an odd thing that the price would would dip the way it has. I mean, you'd figure at the very least the price should be very high uh, to discourage people from buying more tuna, which is disappearing. But uh, no. There's still lots of tuna to go around in the mm. world. But there's still no good explanation why the price has gone down. No, there's just theories and, and sort of speculation. Hmm. So this article you linked to uh, says that the um, number of tuna fishes, the, especially the bluefin, is something around 4% of the size it would have um, if they were not fished. So the natural habitat would be much, much, much bigger. And that most mm. of the fish get fish before they reach uh, reproductive age, basically right. barring them from extending uh, again. Yeah, another controversial practice as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it has to be this way, I don't know, for taste or something? And 80% of the bluefin tuna is actually eaten in Japan. Yeah, so that's why, you know, we, we say global stocks and then we talk about what's happening on a Japanese market. But that is, yeah, because Japan is almost the world of tuna. Despite the fact that wherever you are in the world, you probably occasionally eat tuna. But Japan mm. is eating most of your tuna. Yeah. And there are countries that are sort of battling Japan with all this. Um, Australia and New Zealand are, I think, most famous for it, uh, accusing them in, in different international courts of um, overfishing southern bluefish tuna is probably the most common one they're fighting about. Uh, even back in 2006, they, they started with um, uh, all kinds of lawsuits and, and yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just looking over some of the past uh, fights between these countries. So it's, you know, it's not that Japan isn't uh, heavily criticized for this, but it's also their tradition. If you, if you look on the... Um, Tuna, the, the Wikipedia entry, you actually get the, the auctions, the record prices for auction uh, fish at this Tokyo uh, Tsukiji fish market. Um, it's kind of interesting to look at. I'll link to it. And of course, you get photos of giant tuna in a room. <laughs> okay, so yes. let's move on to, I guess, our last topic, and this can only be the news source. Yeah, I'm going to go a little non-traditional and a little weird. Uh, so here's a story for this week's news source. We didn't use it in the, um, in the articles until this point. Uh, a friend of mine from the days of uh, video blogging, um, Raymond, uh, what's Ray's last name? Oh, I don't know, Raymond from uh, Norway. He, uh, he started a project called the After Hyen, uh, and he doesn't have a title for it, so he calls it After Hyen Working Title. Um, a... <laughs> HWT, if that helps. But, you know, Haiyan was the storm that struck the Philippines. Now, Raymond is married to a woman from the Philippines. They have a child and they're uh, living happily in Norway. But, of course, they've always concerned themselves with what's happening back in her country. He's uh, had different kinds of organizations to help Filipino uh, wor guest workers in, in Norway. 
And he has been talking to me, actually, asking what he should do. And, of course, I, I don't always have answers. But um, basically, he's funding, or he's through this organization, he wants to fund uh, Filipino journalists to make reports in the post-Hayan uh, world about life. Because, of course, the media is moved on already. But he wants to capture and make people aware in the world and maybe even encourage, uh, if possible, more uh, aid w or whatever it is that, that to help rebuild. Um, so he is funding a right now one journalist. Uh, it starts with one to write reports from late, which is one of the places heavily impacted by the storm. Um, of course, uh, for now, he's not sure exactly, you know, how to set it up or how to reach people, but he's starting by, well, because of the amount of people that use Facebook, he's starting with a Facebook page. And uh, so far, the articles are just in PDF form. I think within the next few months, especially if he gets help, uh, it'll just go on a site, you know, a blog style site. But his goal here is to crowdfund or even self-fund as long as he can, um, one or two journalists, because usually they're not overly busy. I mean, they're looking for work. They can write in English. He knows several. Mm -hmm. um, and so he will fund them to, to write reports from, uh, from the Philippines. And it's, um, you know, anyone listening will surely look at the, the Facebook page and say, I could do this better and so forth. And I mean, he's hoping to do this better. He's, he's working on it. But for now, he's already released his first three articles, I believe. And I've read them. They're very personal and they everyday life, you know, in a, in a uh, town or a city that's mostly destroyed. Uh, and, and what's working, what isn't working, what is Christmas feel like was a whole theme of what people are doing to celebrate Christmas, despite the fact that their houses are gone and everything they own is sort of gone. Um, so I thought I would mention it. I'm hoping that not only that they improve in the coming year, but maybe some of our listeners could help them. Who knows? Uh, but I definitely want to get them some attention and I will be looking at them as the year goes on for news from the Philippines especially now as the media won't be reporting about post Haiyan things very often. So this is a very personal recommendation this time. Oh yeah, yeah. But I think that things like this, I mean, as personal as they are and even as, you know, still in early stages, um, this is how you get good information outside of, you know, the, the, the Reuters and the news services. Uh, this is blogging <laughs> in its, in its, origins you know just someone with a story to tell but in this case you know they need some kind of funding to survive so here we have someone who could afford to fund them a little bit or at least start them off and then we'll see what happens so yeah it's a it's a personal recommendation with i think interest for anyone who's wants to know what's going on in this region in the philippines all right so yeah. this brings us to the end of the show. And so tell me what you're going to do <laughs> next, Mark. Well, the A380 of Emirates Air is fueling up and uh, my really? luggage is not on it yet. I don't know if they're fueling up yet. They, they probably aren't. Um, I've got a flight in a matter of hours. Uh, my bag is mostly packed heading to Dubai. Uh, I've got my Dubai taxi project uh, ready to go or at least ready to start recording. And I land uh, late tonight in Dubai, um, and it's all starting. It's crazy. It's it's uh, it's happening. I'm excited. Uh, I've been planning and plotting points on the map where I will 
tell taxi drivers to go, which distances are the longest ones, the shortest ones for, for what destination, um, different cafes that might have internet when I arrive there and so on. Lots of tedious planning because I, I want to be ready. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I'm very happy this all uh, was possible, that uh, so many yeah. people joined crowdfunding and uh, that is actually starting. So you're going to yeah. be there how long for? 16 days. Uh, so 16 days, so almost two weeks. So we might have a chance to do yeah. a News of the World special edition in the next two weeks. Absolutely. Uh, one or two, we'll see how this turns yeah. out. And mm -hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward And to that. And this actually ties back into the Congress uh, last week in Hamburg. So many people, uh, listeners of this program, came up to me and you, Tim. But they, for you, they were talking about several programs. Uh, but they, you know, they said, like the program, listening, thanks. And a lot of people said, hey, good luck in Dubai. And that's uh, even now as I'm gathering my addresses to send postcards, I see how many are from, I can tell, are from the news of the world audience. And it's, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's fun. It's humbling. It's, it's really exciting to see these addresses, actually. I'm, I'm enjoying that part. And I will be sending postcards to those who have uh, supported. And otherwise, you can catch it on my, on my website on Citizen Reporter. Uh, but yeah, I think we can definitely do a news of the world or two. Let's see. Okay, Mark. Yeah. Good luck and uh, good trip. And have you been on the 830? Uh, no, it was my first time. Wow. I haven't yeah. been there yet. So, okay. Yes. Enjoy it. Yes, I'll be up in the lounge with my feet up. No. <laughs> <laughs> Coach is hopefully luxurious on this. <laughs> <plane>. <laughs> so while Mark is, uh, you know, laying up his feet in the presidential suit, On top of the A380, <laughs> we're waiting what news will come out of this. Yep. So, everybody um, else, thank you for listening. Thanks and for all the fish. Yes. All the See you fish. next time. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.